I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Last Night at School Committee. Ross Wilson and I are here to summarize for you what happened last night during the Boston Public Schools School Committee meeting. Ross, good morning. Good morning, Jill. It's good to be here today, and this is the last Last Night at School Committee of the year. Yeah. It was, you know what? It was a good one. It was meaty. It was definitely, it leads us into the new year with a lot to talk about in terms of budget and school closure and enrollment. Yeah, we get to the business of education, right? It was. It was yeah. It was definitely, we moved on from naming buildings to getting into real stuff, which yeah. is about like, how do our schools function and what are we going to be doing for the future? Just to start at the beginning, though, there were some other things discussed as well. Safety being something that sort of came up multiple times during the course of the meeting. This came up, Jill, both from the superintendent and a public comment, actually throughout the entire course of the meeting. Right. And, you know, there's still a concern around safety, the health and wellness and the safety of our students. And we and, saw and that, schools. right, in the recently published study that parents feel like that's one of their number one issues is they don't feel like their kids are safe in our schools. That's right. Then the Mass Inc. poll noted this very clearly around parent concern on this. And so it seems like uh, the superintendent was recommending adding some safety personnel Mm -hmm. to schools. And this came up at the equity roundtable this past Monday prior to the school committee meeting. And there was a lot of concern raised around it. And the concern was saying, hey, we should put more money into restorative justice, Mm -hmm. which is a great process where staff are trained and a school culture is created where students are able to resolve the conflict together. Essentially, people were saying, look, we should put more money into that and more resources into that. Superintendent saying, yes, and Mm -hmm. we should be putting resources into more safety personnel. And of course, we already have cameras in schools and other safety processes. But I think ultimately the, the answer to all of this is yes, and. We should be doing whatever we can to keep our students safe and our teachers safe and absolutely restorative justice It's a really good process to put in place in all of our schools. Right. But restorative justice takes time and it takes trained individuals, right? So uh, she's a little bit between a rock and a hard place at the moment because the need is urgent. And it doesn't sound like we have enough trained professionals who can actually manage restorative justice processes across the district. So we have to build our capacity there. At the same time, we need to make sure that every kid feels safe. The thing that they talked about a couple of school committees ago was how social media is playing such a big role in all of this. And so, so many of the things that are happening, the instigative things are happening before kids come to school. And so that's a very difficult thing for adults to manage. It is, Jill. It it is also, it also relates to sort of the ebb and flow of absenteeism for our students and for our staff members in schools. And so we know, we didn't hear numbers on this last night, but it was alluded to the amount of days that our students are missing because of flu and, and COVID and, and RSV and all the other things that are going around. Right. We have, you know, 200 vacancies in our schools still. Still. We've had 200 vacancies for a long time. Right. And so a lot of subs coming in and out. And we have staff members whose kids get sick and they have to stay home or they may get sick and have to stay home. So there's a lot of instability going on. And I think to your point, the key would be to provide that stability in all of our schools, primarily through staffing and ensuring that we have the right staff in our schools and the consistency for our students. And then also working on implementing restorative justice over the long term. All right. And speaking about flu and COVID and other things, being in our schools, that, that issue came up quite a bit in public comment last night with people being wary of the fact that the number, at least the COVID wastewater numbers are going up. There are more people being diagnosed again or reporting that they have COVID. It, like you said, there's more absences, both professionals and students. And so 
there was some discussion about what are we going to do about it? And the superintendent did allude to the fact that they're thinking about this deeply and trying to figure out what changes they'll make in the new year. We're also evaluating the data and considering adjustments to our protocols because many of you may remember last January when we had significant staffing challenges following the winter break due to a major spike in COVID cases. I wouldn't be surprised, Jill, if masking becomes something that we see in some individual schools, if not across a district for some period of time in the new year. But again, we haven't heard that definitively. That mm-hmm. would be something that that the superintendent will report on in the new year. And I, you know, I did like that the superintendent connected the dots between, you know, some of our absenteeism is the result of this increase in viruses that keep kids home for multiple days. Absolutely. That's right. It, it is amazing though, Jill, and really thankful about this. We're not talking about like closing school yeah. or remote learning. Yeah. Like we're talking about increased yeah. measures, which is really a quite a relief to know that our schooling will not be interrupted. And no forward. one was calling for school closing. Absolutely not. It's it's yeah. just, you know, we have we have a lot of testing, a lot of proactive measures in schools, but we may need to be doing some additional measures in the new year. We'll hear about that soon. All right. Transportation came up as well, in particular because there was an article in the Globe. Right. The Finance Commission recommended that BPS not move forward with the sole bidder for the transportation management contract, which is TransDev. And the Finance Commission is a watchdog. Is a quasi-governmental watchdog that uh, basically makes recommendations about how funds should be used in the city. So on this issue, Jill, the Finance Commission was saying, hey, look, you, you had a sole bidder. We recommend you go back out to see if there's more bidders or find more competition. What the superintendent reported, though, was that the folks who managed this process all reported back to her saying... We crossed every T, we dotted they, every They I. said they spent over a year crafting yeah. this RFP. They got a little pushback from at least Michael O'Neill. I appreciate that you mentioned that you're going to be meeting with the Finance Commission chair and discussing the concerns raised because this is such an important contract. Transportation has been such a challenge for us. And I look forward when you do get the point to make a recommendation to us of really understanding what the alternatives you looked at, not only trying to bring in you know, the most number of companies to bid, but also did you look at alternative ways of maybe breaking it up into smaller ways to do it, et cetera? I mean, Michael O'Neill was saying, are you sure you really thought creatively about yeah. this? And, you know, look, we haven't been knocking it out of the park with transportation, Jill. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we still got, we're in December and we still have kids. We haven't heard the number again, but last time we checked, it was like hovering just below 90%. So over 10% of our kids weren't getting to school on time. And it's still a real issue. And TransDev is a part of that issue. And, you know, Jill, we, we did a look back on this and we're checking back in our podcast from the summertime. And in fact, we heard from Dr. Drew Eccleson, who was interim superintendent at the time. And he essentially said this, guaranteeing that buses were going to be dramatically better this year than ever before. We have a significant number of more drivers than we've ever had in BPS's history to ensure that we have backup drivers to pick up routes that might be uh, running late because of traffic or other things. And I cannot say enough about the leadership of Dell and her team and the Office of Transportation. I feel 100% confident that we are ready. And here we are, months later, with the same transportation issues that we've had year in and year out with the state now telling us that we must meet certain requirements of having 95% of kids on school on time, and and we're continuing to flounder with transportation. Jill, something that came up two months ago, we heard from members of the superintendent's team that there's an impending announcement about Lyft. And this was going to be an announcement about some some transformative thing that was going to help get kids to school, that if, if the bus didn't show up, 
parents could just put their right. kids on a lift and they go to school. It was imminent. It was imminent. And yeah. like it, it was actually really fun. Like they're saying any day now, any yeah. minute now, we're working on the details. Yeah. And then we haven't heard about it since. No. Here we are, end of the year. Transportation is a mess in BPS and we could expect the same next year. Yeah, it's unfortunate. It never changes. Now, Ross, the meat of the meeting, though, was the preliminary discussion about the budget. And I thought this was a fantastic conversation because we don't often hear about the business of education. We also heard about enrollment and we heard about teacher vacancies and and all of those things, right, roll up into the business of education. Do you want to provide kind of a summary of what was presented last night? Thank you, Jill. I would love to. Last night, we heard a framing of the budget that will be presented on February 1st. This was sort of the preliminary thinking around how the budget was kind going of to maybe the strategic direction for the budget. Would yes, you say that's the, what they laid out yesterday? Yes. Yeah. That being said, like schools are getting their budgets. Like they get, they have the schools have gotten their budgets, mm-hmm. but nothing will be presented to the school committee until there's a whole process with schools around what we call probable organization, where they talk about their budgets, their strategic priorities, their staffing. And then ultimately, those will all roll up along with the central office budget and transportation budget and so on into a budget presentation with the school committee on February 1st. And so here's a quick summary of the strategic direction for the budget. BPS is saying, you can trust us to figure out this budget because we've done so for the past 32 years on a balanced budget. And in fact, they only had a surplus of $13,000 last year. Their total spending was about $1.3 billion last year. Mm-hmm. They had higher than expected costs for temporary employees, for utilities, for transportation, and for food. And they actually had savings on employee salaries and on health insurance Mm -hmm. because essentially we had open positions. This year's budget, they are worried a little bit about increased costs with transportation. So basically they're saying, look, we have higher than expected wages. We have higher than expected training costs. We have higher than expected inflation. So we can expect, Jill, to see a report this year that we spent more money on transportation than we have before. I think this number is going to be over $130 million, if not more, on transportation. But that's just my guess. It's a lot of money. It's about 10% of our budget. We also are expecting to see higher than expected costs on food services. There's a new food contract for those schools that are not cooking on their own. And they also see higher utility costs because of commodity prices. Mm-hmm. But Jill, to your point, like they have 200 vacancies. So they're going to save money currently on salaries and come in less on health insurance because they don't have to provide as much health insurance if you have fewer than expected employees. All of that being said, the district is saying we're going to come in on budget. And they spent a lot of time talking about ESSER as well, right? So it's hard to talk about the budget without talking about ESSER. So ESSER, Jill, is $400 million over three years, right? And we're in year two of three years mm-hmm. for ESSER, mm-hmm. okay? And what we heard last night was that essentially schools are receiving about $50 million a year in ESSER funds, okay? So schools are receiving about $161 million in ESSER. So the district allocated ESSER funding out to the schools and said to principals, we want you to decide how to spend this money, probably within some parameters, in order to solve for the effects of COVID. Recover and reinvest and reimagine our schools. And that money sits with the schools, right? And then the district has allocated $210 million to district-wide investments. This right. is added staff, 
central office staff, you know, staff that's in the service of schools. We didn't really get a report out on exactly where we are with those funds. And then, you know, few tens of millions in other areas, right? right. But a lot of money. It's a yep. lot of money. Jill, here's the most important part. We've talked about this for a long time, about the fiscal cliff that was upcoming. Yep. And we know that the SRA funds, this $400 million, will be gone in FY24, in September of 2024. So essentially, we'll have one year left at the end of the school year of ESSER funding. And since the inception of this concept of ESSER funding, there's been a lot of people talking about the fiscal cliff, that and be careful of how we spend these funds. If we spend them on people, those people will go away. Whatever we spend them on, those that will go away. So be careful not to do things that will make us experience a really significant right. cliff. If it's a recurring cost, it can only recur for three years. Right. Yeah. And the district, you know, last year, put a lot of headcounts, a lot of FTEs, a lot of people onto ESSER, mm -hmm. right? They funded a lot of things that they thought were really important, like counselors and librarians and other things on ESSER, and they increased staffing at central office by the hundreds. Right. And, and essentially, all these people were funded under ESSER. And now what we see is a declining enrollment in our district, and we'll get to this in a second. So declining enrollment means less money coming from the state and the federal government for our students and all these ESSER funds going away, right? Right. ultimately. And so last night, what we heard is a very different tenor from the superintendent and the team, mm -hmm. and which was, we are really concerned about these funds going away. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to identify essentially the priorities for the district. Anything that is funded under ESSER, but it is a priority, is important for our students. And those priorities are including serving multilingual learners or student, serving students with disabilities or equitable literacy. Those are all defined priorities by the superintendent in the district. Mm -hmm. And they're basically saying anything that is funded by ESSER for those things, we're going to move over to the general budget. Mm -hmm. okay? Because they're strategic and they're long-term. Right. So we're going to have those conversations. And this year in this budget, we're going to move those over to the general funds to make sure they're sustained for a long period of time. And what we're going to do with ESSER is essentially fund our soft landings. Now, Jill, soft landings are for those schools that are not viable, meaning they don't have enough students in their classrooms or they don't have, they literally cannot be open because the student funding doesn't give enough money to remain open, right. they're given what we call soft landings. BPS gives over $50 million in soft landings to schools in this year's budget. That's more than the budget of like 80% of the districts in Massachusetts, right? Mm. This is a lot of money. Mm. And they're basically saying ESSER will now fund those soft landings. So we're so, gonna take $50 million of ESSER funding and allocate it to those schools that are getting soft landings and school heads of those schools that are receiving this soft land, landing ESSER funding, you have two years. That's exactly what they're saying. They're saying, they're saying, look, we are now, we are now saying soft landings are gonna end in two years. By putting it on ESSER, when that money goes away, soft landings go away. So we have essentially two years. Which is on the one hand, doesn't exactly feel like what ESSER was targeted to do, especially think about all of the kids who have already graduated out of the system who were impacted by COVID. Did we use enough funding to help those kids be, you know, where they need to be out in the world? And it seems like what, what it effectively does is say to someone who doesn't exactly understand how to manage the business of their school, that you have a finite amount of time to figure it out. There's a, there's a counter argument to this, Jill, which is essentially we don't want to create disruption in our schools during this time, during this recovery time. 
So we don't want to begin to move students out of classrooms or out of their schools while they're recovering from COVID and, and the disruption that it caused. So we're essentially saying we have two years to do this. And quite frankly, you know, by having very few kids in a classroom with a teacher, you kind of have the smallest class sizes you can imagine, right? Well, like, well Brandon Kardec Hernandez kind of got to this with his question. I think the sort of first flag for me is that just like fiscal year 25 sounds pretty scary. And I fear sort of using ESSER for soft landings doesn't address the strategic priority of sustainability. I want to give an example just to see if it's it's correct. Like in a school that is currently receiving soft landings for under-enrollment, we would move a currently ESSER-funded equitable literacy coach at that school to the general fund. But a third grade classroom teacher whose position is currently funded with soft landings would have their position funded by ESSER, which ends in 2025. I feel like there's two things happening here. There's there's strategy at the top level that's saying we're going to have to do something to unwind this mess that is, you know, the district. The district has fewer students and it has the same number of schools and and so we've got to right size the district in some way and no better time to do it than the present, especially because we have this additional funding. First, let's talk about en enrollment decline. Yeah. So uh, BPS uh, has their enrollments declined by almost 8,000 students over the last six years. Mm -hmm. They've had an enrollment decline every year. BPS purports that they're at about 48,000 students. This is including Horace Mann Charter Schools. Boston Schools Fund, by the way, puts out a number that's about 46,000. That number is not including Horace Mann Charter Schools. So we have somewhere around 48,000 kids in our district. This is a massive decline. And Jill, we heard last night for the first time from the CFO that the enrollment is not going to increase, right? In fact, like we heard last year from the previous superintendent that if we build it, they will come. You know, with our preschool kids not coming in, you know, I tell Nate all the time, you build it, they'll come. <laughs> that there will, you know, if we just have a quality guarantee, if we just build new buildings, if we just have before and after school programming, we will have more families come to BPS. And in fact, last night, we didn't hear that at all. What we heard was these are the students that we have. This is not going to change for years because if you look at our kindergarten enrollment, it is down and that's going to project essentially for the next at least 10 years, 12 years, that we will be down in enrollment. And we lose kids every year off of that number. And the city of Boston, there's less kids living in the city of Boston than there was in previous years. Right. So our capture rate is essentially the same. You know, we're getting the same percentage of students who live in Boston, come to the Boston public schools. But in fact, it is just down. Yep. And so we have to prepare for the fact that we don't, we're not going to have as many kids in the school system going forward. Right. Period. So there's that paradigm. And then there's also the paradigm of, of we have a number of small schools in the district and it doesn't, having small schools doesn't allow us to do what we want to strategically, which is provide bilingual education to every student to have inclusive schools, right? You have to have bigger schools in order to have the right balance, right ratio between students and support professionals in those circumstances. Jill, in Boston public schools, we have on average, some of the small schools we have in the nation, right? And if you look at other urban districts of our size, they would have about half the number of buildings. Mm -hmm. And there is economy of scale here, right? Like if you have 
more students in a building and more staff, you're able to do things more creatively and offer more services and offer more programming. We see this in our high schools a lot. When we see our small high schools not being able to offer the wide range of programs, of clubs, of athletics, and of activities, that's because they're, they're, they're small and they don't have the ability and the resources to essentially fill the school with all of those wonderful programs that you could expect in any high school, right? right? It's the same as our elementary schools. It's the same, same theory. And so the idea here, and the previous superintendent talked a lot about this, Dr. Casillas, she said, there has to be a quality guarantee. We should be offering, you know, phys ed and theater and all the activities in schools. And therefore our schools should be larger in order to do that. Mm -hmm. Okay. And we've heard, we begin, we've begun to hear this, Jill, right? But this is not a new concept. We heard that the Shaw may have to merge with another school or that in fact, the Rosendale schools may be merging and moving into the Irving. And maybe this is, we're going to see, you know, over the next several months is when they work through the budget. And I think it was very smart of the superintendent to have messaging that makes it simple to understand. I'm going to take ESSER funding. I'm going to put it in schools with soft landings and there will not be ESSER funding in two years. And therefore we will have to right size the problems that soft landings have created for the district. So I would say to any parent who is looking at schools in this school choice season to be careful of what schools you're choosing, because essentially in a short period of time, that school may ultimately close. That classroom may ultimately close. It just might have to. There's like, no, like, right, there there's no is not an unlimited amount of money anymore. By moving all of these, we'll see, we'll see what happens here, but by moving these positions and other expenses that were paid for by ESSER into the general funds mm -hmm. that will bloat the general fund budget right. and essentially require that the city of Boston, that the mayor of Boston has to make some hard decisions. Right. Will they be, they be able to increase BPS's general fund budget because it, it some someone has to pay for this and it's yeah. there's no longer external dollars or the students to pay for it. And it's not coming out of the transportation budget. Not at all. We continue to see that increase. <laughs> the superintendent drew a line in the sand last night and said, we are going to have to deal with this issue. There's no more running away from it. And I'm ready to deal with it. Mm -hmm. And it was really refreshing to hear her say no, She's that very smart. She also, in doing that, said, we have to deal with central office. We have to make mm -hmm. sure our central office is accountable, mm -hmm. that they have clear metrics and clear measures, that they know what they're supposed to be doing, and, and all in the service of our students. And so she was very clear that that is a priority for her. Yeah, she, was, she definitely expressed that there was a lot of mismanagement happening. And she said our school leaders are going to have to make hard decisions. Right. We've been in a very good physical uh, position for a number of years now in BPS. That hasn't been common in the Boston Public Schools. It was a time in BPS. It was not a question of would we be cutting. <laughs> it was a question of how much we would be cutting. I can remember in all my years of leadership at the school level, one year we were level funded. It was 2004. <laughs> it takes building muscle for school leaders to have to strategically make those decisions with their community. Well, it's probably all for the better if those conversations start to bubble up again. We, it probably makes the district serve its students better. Or the mayor has to make a decision to just keep funding it at this more significant level, right? Like you can, there is a strategy that says, okay, well, the mayor wants everything to stay the way it is, and therefore we continue to fund it 
Right. In and an as-is state. But, that, but that money's not coming from the federal government. That money is going to come from other city departments. Right. Right. It, it means that BPS will get a, a larger share of the budget from the city of Boston, which already gets the most money from the city of Boston and any other department. So one of two things has to happen. It seemed like the that the superintendent was quite ready to say, like, let's tighten our belts. We know how to do this. She knows how to do this. That's right. A and, uh, you know, she's, she has to expect that her executive team is going to be able to execute. It's going to be really interesting to watch in the new year. Yeah. Jill, here's one thing that I'm really confused about. CFO Nate Cooter mm. and Vice Chair Michael O'Neill both alluded to part of the solution to this budget crisis and the decrease in enrollment is to build new buildings. Yeah. Unless we really do this work now to get family excited, families excited about new buildings, and yes, they'll be a bit bigger and maybe it'll be two going into one or one and a half going into one. Um, but when they see what they can get from it, it may lessen the love for the small schools, which are really costing this district. And it's it's unfair. It's it's a challenge, as we know, for equity for the rest of our district when we're spending that much on soft landings for an individual school. But it we're so I'm supporting the move of Esther to it, but I'm saying we got a lot of work to do, superintendent, over the next two years for families to understand the implication of it and embrace and get them in on the planning process for new, bigger schools. And mm -hmm. let's get shovels in the ground. And it, it was kind of strange. It, 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 and it was kind of perplexing in that both Nate Cooter and Michael O'Neill were, were, were basically saying, let's just get shovels in the ground and start building buildings. We actually can't build too many buildings at this point. As we start to define the number of schools we have, we have so many buildings that need to be replaced and so many schools that it will actually be a quite a long time before we worry about building too many schools. A slight word of caution here. First, we can't build buildings in two years. It doesn't work that way. It takes through the processes that we've been through with Boston Arts Academy or the Upper Quincy School or the Dearborn. All of those have been multi-year efforts, well over five-year planning efforts. So once the soft landing goes away in two years, we're not all, all of a sudden just going to have new buildings. Right. And two, we need to be very planful about where new buildings should be. Where are our students? What is our model? And how do we create buildings that serve uh, students where they are? And so this, this notion that like to create excitement around, like, let's just put shovels in the ground. One, it takes a really long time. And in fact, the schools that will have to close or merge will not have the benefit of a new building. And two... It's just unrealistic to just say, let's just go build a building wherever we are. When we know how construction works in Boston, it is very, very difficult to build a new building. Yeah. My take on this is that their hearts are in the right place, right? Like it would be really nice to just be able to give people everything they want quickly, immediately, right? And the, I think their hope is that in doing that, we avoid conflict and we avoid stressful situations and we avoid disappointing families. The reality is though, we've been, we've been living through very good economic times. And so we haven't, because of that, had to make hard decisions about how, about the business of education. We've just put more money into the district and just kind of perpetuated problems that existed at the we beginning We haven't of dealt with these, hard, with these hard problems. And so I think the two of them are hope, you know, they're being hopeful. Well, if we build buildings, then we can, you know, rally people around these new buildings and the hope for these new buildings. But to your point, building anything in Boston takes, what, five to 10 years. So the, you're talking about people whose kids will have 
moved on significantly by the time yeah, there's a new Irving or there's a new anything that's not already in development. We'll be building buildings for the children who have just been born in Boston right. with the hope that they come to Boston public schools. Right. And our strategy, honestly, is very different than before. We thought we were going to build new buildings to entice people to come to BPS. Now we're just building new buildings with the hope that people stay. And that's what happened last night at the Boston Public Schools School Committee meeting. This is our last episode of 2022, and we want to thank all of our listeners. It's a privilege to work on this podcast, and we're so grateful for the opportunity to engage with parents, educators, and community members each week who are committed to improving our public school district. We also want to thank our listeners for sending us emails and voicemails with your thoughts. We'd love to hear from more of you about your thoughts on how BPS is serving your child or your family. Please send us an email at podcast at shawfoundation.org. That's S-H-A-H foundation.org. And if you'd like to share a thought that we may use in a future episode, you can leave us a voicemail at 508-261-5904. Thank you for listening to Last Night at School Committee. We hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your fellow friends, parents, and residents of Boston. We all have a stake in the future success of Boston students. Have a great day. Happy holidays and a very happy new year.